morning. Listen, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you recall earlier this year, we began a study through the gospel of John. However, we took a break for about 10 weeks, and we walked through six weeks of uh, church distinctives. And then for the last four weeks, we were covering several of the church values Uh, which was a great study, really helpful for me. I hope it was a blessing to you as well. But this morning, we will be jumping back into the book of John, and we're going to pick up where we left off. Last time, we ended chapter 4. This morning, we will begin in chapter 5. Listen, if you maybe missed some of those sermons, you can always go back and listen to them. They're available on our Spotify, also on our Christ Covenant Fellowship YouTube page. You can find all of those sermons. So John chapter 5. But before we begin and and, uh, jump into John 5, I think it's important for us to have a little bit of context. So I'm going to do a brief, I mean, really, really brief overview of what we learned through the first four chapters of John. So in John chapter 1, Jesus introduced, or excuse me, John introduces us to Jesus, the Word, the one who is co-equal, co-eternal to God the Father, the second person of the Trinity, And he tells us that this word becomes flesh and dwells amongst men. Also in chapter 1, we are introduced to John the Baptist, who is a forerunner to Jesus the Messiah. We also see Jesus calling the first of his disciples in John chapter 1. As we move to John chapter 2, we see the first of Jesus' signs, the first of his miracles as he turns water into wine at this wedding in Galilee. We also see Jesus in John chapter 2 cleansing the temple. So he goes to the temple and he finds that it's become this marketplace and he makes a whip and he drives out all of the money changers. And of course, the Jews begin to question Jesus's authority. And as we end John chapter 2, John begins to introduce this idea of what we'll call false belief, where he says that there were those who believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart's of men, And that's a theme that will continue to run throughout the gospel of John. And as we move to John chapter 3, we see this wonderful conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And Jesus gives this man this profound conversation and a monumental truth when he tells Nicodemus, he says, a man must be born again in order to see the kingdom. And then he points to himself as the means to eternal life in one of the most famous verses in all of the scriptures, John 3, 16. Jesus makes plain that he is the way to eternal life. And as John chapter 3 comes to a close, we see the humility of John the Baptist on display as he says, I must decrease and he must increase. And John the Baptist fades from the scene. And then as we go into John chapter 4, we see Jesus having this wonderful conversation with this Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And he offers her living water and he engages her in a conversation about her failed marriages and her live-in boyfriend. And they even have a conversation about worship. And Jesus changes her life and she runs into the town of Samaria to a group of people she normally would have avoided and she becomes an effective witness for Jesus. And John chapter 4 tells us that Jesus remained there in Samaria for two days. And not because of the woman's testimony did the people of Samaria become to believe, come to believe, but because they spent time with Jesus, because their own experience, their own time 
of face-to-face time with Jesus, they also come to believe. And then as we ended John chapter 4, we saw Jesus rebuke a group of sign seekers. He tells them, unless you see signs, you won't believe. But then he heals this official son, leading to this man and his whole household coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to where we are here in John chapter 5. That is where we will pick up this morning. So if you have your bulletin, it says we're going to go through verses 1 through 18. I'm actually going to only go through verses 1 through 16. That's all we'll cover this morning. As I was reading through the text and studying a few commentaries, most commentators agree. Actually, verse 17 probably belongs in the next section. So I'm actually going to stop at verse 16 this morning. But what I want to do is read this text for us. Then I'll pray and ask God to bless our time and ask that he would be glorified through the preaching of his word. So John chapter 5, starting at verse 1, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And it reads as such. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this, is, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we once again come before you, Lord, thankful for this opportunity to fellowship together. God, we thank you for the word that's been written and revealed and given to us. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what we can't hear or see on our own. Lord, help us to understand the purpose of these verses, the purpose behind this passage, God. Open our hearts to receive the truth of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through this time of preaching. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in and through me to do what only you can, bringing the dead to life, saving the lost, exalting yourself through our time of worship this morning. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus performed many wonderful signs and wonders. He did a lot of 
wonderful, miraculous, and incredible things that John records for us here in his gospel account. In fact, John writes at the end of his gospel account in chapter 21, verse 25, and he says this, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That means Jesus did a lot of things that aren't recorded for us here, but John is very strategic in the things that he does record for us. See, the miraculous works of Christ generated such an incredible buzz at that time. It created a sensationalism in Israel that had never been experienced before. So here's this man from Nazareth who is healing the sick, who's giving sight to the blind, who's even raising the dead. You see, the attraction to Jesus was unprecedented. The people were so enthralled with Jesus, in fact, that at one point they try to take him and force him to be their king. But unfortunately, they misunderstood the purpose for which Jesus had come. Jesus didn't come to set up some sort of social welfare program. He didn't come to simply meet the physical needs of the people here on earth. See, Jesus didn't come to reform society. He came to redeem sinners. He came to give eternal and abundant life to seek and save the lost. You see, this eternal life, this redemption of sinners, this plan of salvation motivated all that Christ did. Even his miracles are meant to point us to the greater reality of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. This was always his purpose. This is what he always had in mind. So everything he says and does is intentional. It's strategic that way. Everything serves Christ's divine purposes. You see, as we look at this encounter here in John chapter 5, we find Christ yet again demonstrating his power and authority as the Son of God. But we also see on display Jesus' compassion and his grace. While this is indeed a beautiful picture of the gracious, loving, compassionate Savior that we belong to, we find that this miracle is performed with great intention. It's performed for a specific purpose. Jesus doesn't simply heal this man to better his life or his circumstances. There's much more happening here. So as we walk through this text, I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of take it in two sections. So we'll look at it as two parts, two scenes, if you will. So the first scene will be verses 1 through 9, and we'll call that the miracle. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of label your headings and keep your notes separated that way. So scene 1 would be the miracle. That's, that's verses 1 through 9. Scene 2 will be what we call the response, and that'll be verses 10 through 16. So as we walk through these verses, these scenes together, my hope is that God would open our eyes to see the greater significance of what's happening here, and that we would each be challenged to respond appropriately, that we would be challenged yet encouraged by this picture of this loving, compassionate Savior named Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's walk through these verses together. So verse 1 begins by essentially setting the scene, establishing the location for this encounter. And it reads, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
So as chapter 4 ends, after Jesus heals the official son, he departs from Galilee and he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Why is it significant that Jesus goes to Jerusalem? Well, if you recall, the last time that Jesus had been in Jerusalem, he had made a whip and run all the money changers out of the temple. And so the Jews are obviously building this animosity towards Jesus. Now, again, Jesus is the son of God, so he is divine in his knowledge. He knows that there is tension mounting against him. And yet he intentionally decides to go to Jerusalem. That'll be important to the overall understanding of this text later. Jesus, again, didn't do anything flippantly. He went to Jerusalem with a purpose. Now, verse 2 tells us that in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, was a pool called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. Now, John's audience would have been familiar with this location. They would have been very familiar with the gates that were built around the city of Jerusalem, the sheep gate that's mentioned here. Maybe some of you, if you've read through the book of Nehemiah, you're familiar with that story as well, where Nehemiah goes and helps to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem and mentions the Sheep Gate here and the location of other gates as well. You might also be familiar with that encounter uh, from the book of Nehemiah. But here it says the word or the pool is called Bethesda. Now, the word Bethesda is the Greek transliteration of a Hebrew or Aramaic word that means house of outpourings, or house of mercy. And what an aptly named location for what is about to transpire. This is so incredibly fitting. Again, all by the Lord's divine orchestration, by his purpose, that he would come and heal this man in a pool called house of mercy. This is so fitting See, in verse 3, it says that at this pool or in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So the text tells us at this site, at this pool, there's a lot of people laying around that are disabled, that are sick, that are ill, that are dealing with illnesses. But something I want to draw to your attention before we move on quickly is if you look at the text, you'll notice something, and maybe some of you have noticed this already. Verse 4 is missing. If you have the ESV like I have, it goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. There is no verse 4, which is odd. Now, if you have the King James Version, there is a verse 4. In fact, if you also have the King James Version, verse 3 is actually a little bit longer than what we have in the ESV. If you have the NIV, it also offers you a footnote that includes a verse 4. So the question becomes, why? Well, why is it missing? Why the discrepancies here? Well, the earliest and most reliable uh, copies or manuscripts that we have do not include verse 4. It is believed that verse 4 was added later by the scribes after John had recorded and written his gospel. It is believed that they added the extra or the the extended version of verse 3, and they added verse 4 as marginal notes to explain further what we have in verse 7. If you look down at verse 7, It says, the man talks about the water being stirred up. Well, here, let me just read for you the extended version of verse 3 and the verse 4 so we have some context. And it it would read this way. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And they waited for the moving of the waters. Then verse 4, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease 
they had. So that is how it would read with the addition to verse 3 and adding a verse 4. Now, again, most biblical scholars agree that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include these verses. They were later added as marginal notes to add further explanation. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with me? We good? Okay. Very good. So anyway, the belief was that there was some sort of healing power in the pool of Bethesda and that ever so often the waters would be stirred and whoever could get into the water first immediately after the stirring of these waters would be healed of whatever disease they had. Now, verse 5 tells us that there was one man there who was ill and suffering and he'd been there for 38 years. Now, it says he was an invalid. It doesn't give us any details of his condition. But what we are to assume is that he was somehow immobilized. He couldn't really move very fast. Maybe he was partially paralyzed or he had some condition that weakened him so much that he could hardly move because he couldn't make it to this pool to be healed, right? We can only assume on his condition. We can also assume that this man had come to this pool with great hope, that he had hope in these waters, Again, this is 38 years of suffering, of illness, of this debilitating condition. And so he has hope in these waters that he can enter into this pool and be healed. Now, there's no telling how long this man had been there. He could have been laying beside this pool for weeks, months, years, whatever. The text just says Jesus knew the guy had been there a very long time. We don't know uh, exactly how long that was. We knew he had been there for quite some time, and he was hoping to be healed. And see, when we arrive at verse 6, here's where we begin to see the compassion of Christ healing this man. See, what I want you to take note of is just as Christ in his compassion is moved to intervene in this man's situation, God in Christ is moved to act on behalf of sinful humanity. Is this thing on? Amen, somebody. Amen, somebody. God has intervened on your behalf. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your reality this morning. His compassion has brought you from death to life. And here we see the loving compassion of Christ on display, but we also see something else. Jesus' divinity here. We see his divine knowledge. Verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? See, the text tells us that Jesus knew. Now, we have no reason to believe that Jesus had ever met this man in fact, in verse 13 shows us that they didn't know one another. So what we see here on display is the fact that Jesus is indeed God. He is the son of God. He has a divine, supernatural knowledge. This is Jesus showing that he has intimate knowledge of every man, every woman, every situation, every circumstance, every heart. You see, Jesus knew that this man had been suffering for 38 years. He knew exactly how long this man had been laying beside this pool day after day after day, just hoping to enter into these waters and be healed. Jesus was completely aware of this man's situation prior to this day. You see, just as Jesus 
knew this man's situation. He knew his need. He knew his suffering. He knows yours too. He knows mine. I think sometimes it's really easy for us to forget that. We don't always feel like God knows what's going on with us. Look, I can even say that that's been me even this week. Right, that there are things happening in my life and it feels like one thing after another, things are piling on top of each other and it's like, God, don't you see what I'm already dealing with? God, don't you know what's happening down here? Yes, he knows. Yes, he knows. He is aware. He is a good and loving God. He is compassionate. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever circumstances, whatever challenging circumstances may arise in your life, Don't think that God is some distant or disconnected God that doesn't know. Don't think that he's far away. The Bible tells us quite the contrary, that God is very near to us. Psalm 145, we've read this several times in our call to worship in our services, but Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. He's not far away. He knows Right? In Matthew chapter 6, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he's preaching to his disciples, he tells the disciples that God has such intimate knowledge of what's going on with them that he knows what you need before you ever even ask. He knows. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, can sympathize with us. Why? Because he knows where we're at. Because he knows what we're going through. He knows you. He knows us. And I think an important caveat to that is that doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to remedy your situation the way you want or when you want. It's important to understand that. And we even see that from this text, right? I mean, the man had been an invalid for 38 years. Why didn't Jesus come to him before then? Why'd he wait? The man had been laying beside that pool, the text says, for a very long time. Why didn't Jesus come to him before that day? If he knew this man's suffering, if he knew his condition, why not come sooner? It's because Christ is on a divinely, he was on a divinely appointed schedule, not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. He encountered this man at this pool at exactly the right time. And this serves as a reminder to each of us. It's God's timing, not ours. God's timing, not ours. We must trust that not only will God act at the appropriate time, we have to trust that God will act in the appropriate fashion. See, I think that's hard for a lot of us. We want God to act the way we want him to act when we want him to do it, right? It's hard to trust his timing. It's hard to trust God's timing. But again, God is fully aware of our circumstances, and he operates according to his divine schedule. So he may not rectify your financial situation right away. He may not fix your marriage immediately or ever. He may not heal your diseases, but he's fully aware of your need and your circumstance. And most importantly, he is a loving, compassionate, faithful God. If you don't believe that, look no further than the cross. Amen? 
Y'all don't hear me. You don't believe. You ain't with me. Amen? Amen. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for the compassion of Christ that saves and secures us eternally. See, the text tells us that Jesus knew this man had been there a very long time. And so Jesus approaches the man in verse 6, and he says, sees him lying there, and he says, he goes, it says he goes to him. Jesus goes to him. Now, why is this significant? Well, I want you to think about this. Among that great multitude of people, of all the sick people laying there at the pool, all the paralyzed, the blind, the lame, every person, Jesus chooses this one man and goes to him. Now, why is that important? Because this highlights the unmerited grace and favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the text doesn't tell us that the man did anything. He didn't do anything to earn Jesus' attention or to earn his compassion or his favor. Jesus simply chooses to exercise his loving compassion toward this man. Brothers and sisters, this is a humbling reality that we're taught throughout the entirety of God's story, God's sovereign choice. You see, the Bible from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, teaches us that God's grace and favor is freely given to humanity. It's not earned. It's unmerited. It's given to us not because we're somehow deserving of it, but because God is so loving and gracious. Again, this points us to the reality of God's sovereign choice. And we see this on display elsewhere. We see this on display throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Like even with Jesus, what does Jesus do? He chooses 12 disciples, right? So he goes to 12 men of Israel and he chooses them. They don't choose him. He chose them. We even see an encounter uh, with a guy like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a man who was just trying to fight through the crowds and climb a tree because he really wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus is walking along, and he just turns and looks and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house. He chose Zacchaeus. He hadn't done anything significant. Even John chapter 9, which is an encounter we'll get to later with uh, the blind man. Right, the disciples are walking along, and Jesus sees this blind man and chooses to give him his sight. Jesus chose him. Even go back to the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. God chose them to make them his people. Not because they were so numerous or mighty or great, but because of his loving choice. The sovereign initiative is with the Lord. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, see, if God has changed your heart and renewed your mind and healed your soul, you can't take credit for that. That was all by his doing. He chose you. Again, what a humbling reality that is. Thank God that he so graciously and compassionately has numbered you amongst the redeemed. Amen? So we see Jesus here out of his grace and compassion. He sees this man and he approaches him and he asks him somewhat of a simple yet a bit of a loaded question. Jesus says to the man, do you want to be healed? Now other versions will read, do you wish to get well? 
Now, this may feel like a really foolish question for Jesus to ask. I mean, obviously, this brother wants to get well, or else he wouldn't be at this pool trying to enter into the waters. Furthermore, why would you ask him that, Jesus? I don't know anyone who's suffered from a debilitating disease for nearly four decades that's going to say no when you ask them if they want to be healed. Jesus, why do you ask him this question? Now, this may, again, feel like a silly or unnecessary question, but again, everything Jesus does is with purpose and intention. So this isn't just a simple question. This is more of an offer that Jesus is extending. Even like the offer we saw in John 4 to the woman at the well of living water, or the offer we'll see when we get to John 6 of the living bread that is Jesus Christ. This isn't a question. This is an offer. This is Jesus saying, do you want to get well? Do you want the healing that I can provide? Do you desire that? Well, how does the man respond? Let's look at verse 7. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And notice the man doesn't really answer Jesus' question. At least he doesn't answer it in the, the affirmative. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed, which is what you would expect from a man in his position. It's not a yes, please help me. Instead of responding to this offer affirmatively, instead the man only points to what he perceives to be insurmountable obstacles to his healing. Now let's stop right there for just a second. Isn't this just like a lot of us? Isn't this just like a lot of people that we encounter? Right? You share the gospel with them. You extend this invitation of eternal and abundant life, freedom in Jesus Christ. And rather than saying yes, they offer you excuses. They explain their situation. Right? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Brandon, about this Jesus thing, and he sounds really great, and I know he's a healer, and I know he's forgiveness of sins, all that, but man, you don't understand. I got this, this, and this going on in my life, and I just got to do this over here, and I just, I just can't. Man, that all sounds wonderful and great and true, and that's fine, but just right now, you don't understand. See, the way things are set up for me, see, I got... I got this, and I got to do these things over here. You see, some of us are just like this man. Rather than responding to this glorious invitation of life in Christ and a redeemed soul, we have excuses. We have a thousand reasons why we can't. But praise God, the burden isn't on us. It's not about what we can do. You see, like many people, what this man believed Jesus could do for him was limited to what he believed was possible. But praise God that he is not bound by any human response, uh, restrictions, expectations, or boundaries. Our God is infinitely capable and can do all that he pleases. There is no limit to what God can do. Ephesians 3.20 even tells us that God can do even more than we could ever ask or think. That's a lot. That's a lot. But again, some of us don't believe that. Some of us, like this man, we simply focus on making excuses and looking at our earthly circumstances. Or worse, some of us, if Jesus would have said, hey, do you want to be healed? We would have said no because we don't think anything's wrong with us. 
Amen, somebody. Thank you, my man. Some of us don't think anything's wrong with us. So when Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? We say no. So many of us don't see the need for this healing Savior. We're comfortable with who we are. We're comfortable in our sin. We don't have eyes to see how deadly it actually is. So we see no need for the great physician and the healing that he offers because we don't know ourselves to be sick yet. So here's my encouragement or my challenge to you this morning. If either of those categories are describing anyone in this room, if you're a person in here this morning and you've heard the gospel preached multiple times, but you're consistently making excuses, or maybe you're a person in here and you don't realize how sick and desperate you actually are, and my hope and prayer is that God would open your eyes to the reality of your situation this morning and the glorious majesty of Christ, his healing power, and you would surrender your life to him today. Life is available to you. The Bible tells us, whosoever will, let him come. See, the reality is that we're all like this man. We're all sick in some way. We all suffer from the sickness of sin. And Jesus is the all-sufficient healer. But this man, he's got excuses. He wants to offer a summary of his Situation, what has prevented him from entering the pool. But Jesus, once again, he displays his divinity and his power. So he's shown his divine nature. He's shown that he's God with his divine knowledge of this man and his situation. He's going to show again that he's God, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah with all power in his hands by what he does here in verses 8 and 9. And it says this, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, took up his bed and walked. See, this shows us that Christ Jesus as the son of God has all power over all circumstances. See, the son of God spoke and this man was instantly healed, instantly, right away. 38 years of suffering, gone. The man didn't have to take some prescription. He didn't have to go to eight weeks of physical therapy or rehab. Instantly healed. Power of the Son of God on display. Not only does he tell the man that he's healed, but he's completely and fully healed. A guy who could barely move to walk down a set of stairs to get into a pool is now up and mobile and carrying his mat. See, just as the man was suffering from 38 years, it shows the magnitude of his suffering. The healing that Jesus gives him is, is illuminated because of the way the man responds physically. He couldn't even move for 38 years. And Jesus says, get up. And the man instantly gets up and he doesn't just stand. He walks and he's carrying his mat. That is the transformative power of Christ Jesus to bring the dead to life to redeem situations, to change hearts, to renew minds, to save the lost. You see, just as this man was instantly healed, for those of us that place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're instantly justified right away. We don't have to wait. 
Praise God. Something that I think is interesting to note about this miracle is that this man doesn't even exercise any faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's important, too. Notice that Jesus heals this man without the man even demonstrating any kind of faith in him. You know, there are a lot of people these days, and I guess we'll call them what we call faith healers, right? And they'll tell you, man, if you just have enough faith in Jesus Christ, he'll heal you. Right, And you see these guys on TV, and they have these massive conferences all over the world, and people flock to them because they're really hoping that they're going to get healed. Right? See, but the problem is that, first of all, that's unbiblical to say that, oh, if you just have enough faith, God will heal every single disease. That's, that's not biblical. Number two, what do we do with the people who go to those conferences and events, and they leave there in the same condition they came in? People who truly love Christ have truly exercised faith in him. And then they leave and they're still wheelchair bound or they're still battling this terminal illness. And these faith healers so corrupt and so wicked in their philosophies, they tell you, oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Maybe you just didn't give enough. Right? A text like this is a prime example that it doesn't necessarily take faith to proceed some sort of healing. That's not the way it works. Jesus healed a lot of people without them exercising any faith in him. I think it would the 10 lepers, right? Heals all 10 of them. Only one of them came back to worship Jesus. The rest of them went on about their business. So Jesus didn't always heal people simply because they exercised faith in him. This is just a beautiful illustration of Jesus's compassion and God's sovereign choice. What a blessing it is for each of us to have been given such grace for God to choose each of us to be called his children, to have been chosen by him and destined for salvation all because of his amazing grace. What a beautiful picture of it we have here. So that is just a synopsis, so to speak, of the miracle. Now let's move to the response briefly. So we've seen the compassion and the power of Christ displayed through the miracle. Let's look at how the man responds. Now the second half of verse 9 says this. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. This is not a mundane or insignificant detail, but rather something that's critical to the understanding of this incident and the purpose for which Jesus does what he does. Now, let's look at verse 10. It says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And we'll stop right there. These Jews, who are these Jews? Well, this is the same group that encounters uh, John in chapter 1, John the Baptist, Right? They come and question him because he's baptizing. It's the same group that harasses Jesus after he clears the temple. Well, who are these Jews? These are the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These, this same group, they come and now they're hammering this man, questioning him. Hey, man, you're violating the Sabbath. You're carrying your bed. So they're harassing this dude, saying he's violated the Sabbath. So... How did he violate the Sabbath? Or maybe the more appropriate question is, did he actually violate 
the Sabbath. Well, according to Exodus 31, verses 12 through 14, work was prohibited for the nation of Israel on the Sabbath day. However, those texts do not specify the type of work, but what is believed is that it was your occupation. Any type of work you did for your livelihood, right, part of your occupation, your employment, was to be forbidden on the Sabbath. However, rabbinic tra- uh, the rabbinic tradition took Sabbath requirements a step further, and they added 39 categories of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. One of those uh, categories included carrying any goods, right? So if your job was to carry and transport goods, you could not do that on the Sabbath. So they see this man walking and carrying his bed, and they say, oh, brother, you're carrying goods. You're violating the Sabbath. That's not exactly how it works. John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur is helpful here as he commentates on this section of Scripture, and he says this, The rabbinic prohibition against carrying loads on the Sabbath was ostensibly based on such passages as Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18, and Jeremiah 17, 21 through 22. Those passages, however, are aimed at individuals who conducted their ordinary business, their livelihood or occupation on the Sabbath. Thus, they did not apply to the healed man since he did not make his living carrying his mat, end quote. Does that make sense to everyone? It's not like this brother carried mats for a living, okay? That wasn't his job. But yet here here we have this group of Jews hammering down on this man. And they're questioning, not because he's violating God's law, but because he's violating their man-made traditions. And technically, he wasn't even violating it. But either way, this man is intimidated by these religious leaders. He's feeling the pressure. So what does he do? He passes the buck. Verse 11 says, he tells them that, what was the man who healed me that said to me, take up your bed and walk? So he's buckling under the pressure of these religious leaders and he passes the buck and he blames Jesus. Oh, well, this guy told me to pick up my mat. But I want you guys to notice something in verse 12, the response of the Jews here. They say to him, who is the man who said to you to take up your bed and walk? Now, what's important to note is they skipped right past the most miraculous thing. The guy says, the man who healed me. Man, they don't even acknowledge that. They don't even acknowledge that this man has been healed from a condition that he suffered for for 38 years. Man, we're right to assume that these guys probably knew this dude, especially if he had been there a long time. They're in Jerusalem. They spent a lot of time there. They probably knew this man. They had probably seen him in his previous condition, and now here's this man upright, walking, carrying his mat, and they don't care anything about the miraculous that's happened. They only want to preserve their religion. They only want to preserve their tradition. So they question the man. And who told you to violate the Sabbath? Not who is this miraculous man that you speak of that's healed you, who told you to violate the Sabbath? But there's one problem. The man doesn't know who it was. He has no idea who it was that healed them. And so the text tells us that Jesus had slipped away because there was a great crowd there. No doubt there were those who were seeking the miraculous, the sensationalism, or those that may have been looking to persecute Jesus. Right? So Jesus had slipped away, he had withdrawn from them. And verse 14 says, afterward, Jesus found him. 
Now, let's stop there for a moment. Jesus is the son of God, again, with this divine knowledge. So he knows if I go back to this man and identify myself, he knows this man is going to go tell these, these Jewish leaders who he is. He knows his identity is going to be revealed. So then why does Jesus go back to this man? Why does he offer this opportunity to be identified? What's well, more than just that. Jesus goes to admonish this man. He goes to warn him. And Jesus says to this man, see, you are well. Now sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And what a sobering, sobering statement this is. You see, Jesus points this man and us to an important truth, that there are consequences of sin, certainly for eternity, but also in this life. Also in the here and now. And one of those consequences can look like illness and sickness. Now, the Bible does teach us that not all illness, not every single illness or sickness that we experience is the result of some personal or individual sin. I mean, again, think about the encounter in John chapter 9, right? They're walking along and they see the blind man and Jesus' disciples say, "Who, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus says, this man was born blind for the glory of God. So the Bible clearly teaches that that not uh, all illnesses or calamities or diseases are the result of personal sin. However, the word of God does teach us that there are consequences to our sin and that can, in some circumstances, take the form of illness and disease. I think about 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 30, and Paul says, as he's writing to them about eating and drinking worthily for the Lord's Supper. And he says, if you don't, you keep judgment on yourself. He's talking about their sin, right? And he says, because of this, that being their sin, he says, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Or think about the encounter in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where they lied to the Lord and the apostles about their, the sale of their property, and they're both instantly struck dead. God's judgment, result of their sin. Now, it's quite possible that this man's condition was a result of some personal sin. So Jesus warns the man. He says, listen, if you continue to walk in unrepentant sin, something worse than 38 years of physical suffering will befall you, namely an eternity under the just judgment of God. See, Jesus challenges this man to turn from his sin. He heals him. He tells him to stand. He commands him to walk, but wants him to walk in obedience. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that we too have been healed for holiness. Second Timothy 1.9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Hebrews 12.14, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verses 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ calls us to do, to live lives of holiness. The reason that he gave his life to heal our souls is that we would walk in obedience, that we would glorify him with lives of holiness. 
You see, just as Christ has healed this man physically and he calls him to sin no more. In the same way, for those of us that are in Christ, for those that have had our souls restored and redeemed and been made whole in Christ Jesus, holiness is our response. Worship and devotion to Christ Jesus. See, what Christ has gifted us is something greater than any physical healing. It's more miraculous than healing the paralyzed or giving sight to the blind. See, we were all dead in our sins. But in Christ Jesus, we are alive. Amen? See, just as this man would have died in his condition apart from the compassion of Christ, unless we repent and turn to Jesus, we too will perish and suffer for eternity, something far greater than any suffering this life has to offer. So we move to verse 15. It tells us that this man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, this man wasn't trying to give Jesus credit. That's not what he's doing here. He isn't attempting to offer praise and honor to the Lord Jesus. He's simply trying to enter the good graces of these Jewish leaders because they'd been pressuring him trying to persecute this man, saying he's violated the Sabbath. So he goes back to them and says, well, the guy who healed me and told me to violate the Sabbath was this guy named Jesus. Again, this is why, or this is where we really get to the heart of this encounter. This is where we get behind the purpose for which Jesus performs this miracle. Verse 16 says this, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus knew before he entered Jerusalem, before he ever healed this man, he knew exactly what would happen. He knew this man would immediately go back to the Jews and give up his identity. He knew this would lead to more confrontations with the Jewish leaders about the Sabbath. He knew this would go from animosity to opposition to outright rejection and persecution. The Son of God had a greater, more glorious purpose in all of this. This is really fulfilling his plan of redemption. This is leading him to the cross. And there's a great purpose behind these passages, even though these men couldn't see what Jesus was doing. I hope that we are able to see. See, Jesus could have healed this man at any time. Could have healed him on a Thursday, on a Monday, on a Friday, whatever. He chooses intentionally to heal this man on the Sabbath. Why? To confront the dead religion of these Jewish leaders, to combat their Jewish legalism. See, the Pharisees and these religious leaders, they held so tightly to their traditions. They believed if they kept the Sabbath and all that they added to it, that they would be saved. But here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to combat that idea. Here's this long-awaited Messiah standing right in front of them, and they can't see it. All they're worried about is preserving their traditions. See, Jesus is the all-sufficient healer, not simply because he can heal our diseases, but because he's healed us of the sickness of sin. He heals us from our dead religion. See, there was a multitude of invalids laying around the pool. In this room is a multitude of sins, right? We all sin. We just sin differently. 
And Jesus knows what our sin is. He knows our ailments. He knows what plagues us. And he covers every sin. Amen? Amen. He covers every sin, whatever plagues you. Just as he can heal any disease, blind, lame, paralyzed. The blood of Jesus covers every sin, pride, greed, lust, anger, whatever it is. Jesus is the great healer. And that's freely available to whoever shall come. But the Pharisees couldn't see. They didn't have eyes to see. Listen, Jesus shows us here that there's no healing found in pools or water or tradition or man-made customs or even the law. The healing that every man and woman so desperately need is only found in Christ Jesus. See, as we close our time together this morning, this encounter in John 5 is a beautiful demonstration of Jesus' compassion. It demonstrates his authority and his power as the Son of God. We also see this astonishing response by this man and these Jews. The unfortunate reality is not everyone will respond to Christ. Not everyone will turn to him in faith or devote themselves to him. Not all people will surrender or commit themselves to Jesus. Some people will deny this invitation to life. There are those who will deny the invitation to healing. But to those who turn to Christ, to those who look to him in faith, we find the forgiveness of sins. What you receive is infinitely greater than any physical healing. See, the glorious reality is that all who turn to Jesus are delivered eternally from the eternal penalties of sin. We might not be healed from every single illness or disease, but the greatest benefit is having a soul that is secured in Christ Jesus, having eternal and abundant life because of this glorious an all-sufficient Savior. And that is available to whoever will accept that invitation this morning. Let's pray.